Winds in the east, mist coming in, like something is brewing, about to begin. Can't put me finger on what lies in store, but I fear what's to happen, all happened before. That's right, folks. This week we are talking about the iconic Disney classic, Mary Poppins, right here on the movie musical Shakedown. Let's get it going. Ladies and gentlemen, may I have your attention for This is it! Five, six, seven, eight. talent and see what we can do with it. You're going to make me believe that you belong on that stage. Dancing on that show is my dream. Tommy, can you hear me? Uh, I have to be honest with you folks. Watching Mary Poppins this week brought back so much memories. Um... Incredible how much nostalgia I had when I was watching this film. You know, it's funny. With Mary Poppins, this was one of the um, – you know, as a kid growing up, my parents would buy these um, Disney collections on on tape cassette. And we would play them on pretty much every you know family vacation we would go on to trips to Vermont or New Hampshire to Massachusetts and things like that. And, you know, me and my brother would sit in the back seat and just sing along with these tape cassettes. And – Mary Poppins, the many songs from this this movie uh, were featured on those tapes. So what's amazing about watching this film is that not only was I reminiscing about the times that I watched this movie as a kid, but also um, where I was when I was listening to these songs, you know, by themselves too as well. So a lot of um, a lot of interesting memories and, and thoughts that came up while watching this film. But of course, this week we're taking on the probably the most iconic live action Disney film of all time. I mean, find me a, find me a more iconic live action film of all time coming from this company. Um, absolutely iconic. Changed the course of filmmaking, changed the course of Disney as a company. Um, and not only that, it's one of the best movie musicals of all time. Let's, let's put that out there. Come at me. If you, <laughs> if you disagree, this is by far one of the best movie musicals of all time. It has every, aspect you would want in a movie musical it's got phenomenal singing it's got amazing choreography the design is breathtaking especially when you think about the time of when it came out in the early 60s it's absolutely revolutionary um and of course you know the acting is strong too as well and it's funny you know this was my favorite movies to watch as a kid and now watching it again as a 37-year-old man, and this time with a four-year-old son sitting next to me, my perspective on the film in- changed entirely. I mean, it's it's completely different. I found myself laughing a lot more um, than I previously have. And I also found myself getting emotional quite often during this movie, a lot more than I previously have as well. So it was a really interesting watching experience. And for those of you who have probably watched this movie recently— you know exactly what I'm talking about. Obviously, you know, this was one of the movies that I thought about really at the beginning of when I started planning out this podcast and saying, okay, what movies do I really want to tackle? Mary Poppins was right at the top of the list. And, you know, obviously because it's iconic, but also because, I mean, let's be honest, we all know Mary Poppins Returns is hitting theaters um, next week, I believe, December 19th. So it's coming up. Um, And, you know, the buzz on that movie is extraordinary. I'm hearing so many good things 
about that film. Um, obviously, you know, the, the Hollywood foreign press agrees because, you know, the movie hasn't even come out yet and it's already been nominated for a slew of Golden Globes awards. Uh, and I'm also being told that it's a heavy contender for Oscar consideration as well. So, you know, this movie's going to be huge. And a lot of people are probably going to be taking a look back at Mary Poppins in the next couple of days um, and just kind of rewatching and getting in that in that mode again of learning about the Banks family and this amazing nanny that comes to basically save the family. So um, we're going to be talking about all of that. We're going to be talking about the significance of this film, the really phenomenally interesting development of the film and the story behind that as well. We're also going to be talking about some close calls when it came to casting because, you know, these, some of these people were not the first choice for these roles, which is incredible to think about seeing how iconic their performances have become. Um, and we're also going to be talking about a lot of, you know, obviously talking about what we liked, what we didn't like, some lingering questions that I have about this film. Um, but I do want to apologize right off the bat because I've said in the past, I will always be doing this with a co-host. Um, that is not the case <laughs> on this podcast. I will be doing this one solo. Um, there will be more of these where I do them solo because sometimes I just I want to do these podcasts so quickly and it's tough to line up certain types of co-hosts because everybody has a life, everybody has a schedule, um, and you, they don't. Their world does not revolve around my podcast. So sometimes it's tough to get a co-host uh, for these when I want to get these out as quickly as possible. So. I'm doing this one by myself, but I promise you it's going to be entertaining. It's going to be insightful um, and and definitely worth the listen. So you're not you're not wasting your time. So a lot to talk about uh, when it comes to Mary Poppins. We're going to talk about it all. Uh, but first, the trailer. Remember the magic, the music, and the moments. Mary Poppins is coming for the first time ever, exclusively to a two disc Disney DVD. The groundbreaking film that Leonard Moulton calls Walt Disney's crowning achievement is now fully restored to its breathtaking best. Mary Poppins, you look beautiful. Supercalifragilisticexpialidocious, even though the sound of it is something quite atrocious. Winner of five Academy Awards, including Julie Andrews as Best Actress. Practically perfect in every way. And Best Song, Chim Chim Cheri. Chim Chimini, Chim Chimini, Chim Chim Cheri. When you're with a sweep, you're in glad. She's wonderful. Newsweek calls it a sheer delight to the eye, the ear, the senses. Walt Disney's Mary Poppins Special Edition two-disc Disney DVD. Coming 2004. Alrighty, so let's get back into it. A lot to discuss about this film. A lot of aspects, a lot of interesting stories behind the scenes. And also a lot of questions that I have about this movie as I was watching it. Because it's like, you know, you watch it as an adult and you you notice certain things that you didn't notice as a child. That you're like, wait, wait a second, what about that? Uh, which don't, doesn't necessarily makes the, the the movie bad, but um, definitely makes it more interesting to, to discuss. But anyway, um, as we begin all these podcasts, just some general interesting notes about this film. Um, first and foremost, the budget, uh, which I haven't been able to find like an exact uh, figure of, of what this movie cost to make, but most reports that I've been seeing say that the budget was around four to six million dollars. That's four to six million, not 46 million, four to six million uh, to actually make, which granted, I mean, that's a lot of money in 1964, but considering what went into the production of this film, what it went into the making of this film, I do find it somewhat 
incredible that they made it for only four to six million dollars, which is absolutely incredible because I know that there have been other films of that era, um, James Bond films, for instance, um, other films that did have higher budgets um, and that definitely did not look as impressive when it came to the production design of this film. So incredible that it was actually made for for that much money um, at that time. Uh, Release date, August 29th, 1964. That date is pretty significant, which we're going to talk about during this podcast. Um, The box office figures, the precise box office figures for 1964 are a little unclear, but according to most websites that track these things, uh, through re-releases and other things that that have gone on uh, since the movie came out, they're saying that the total gross is about 102.3 million. So quite a profit there for Disney, obviously, 46 million to 120, excuse me, 102 million. Um, obviously, they've made a lot more money on this movie through VHS and DVD sales and all the other things. But from its actual gross standpoint, quite a bit of profit there as well. Um, movie came out, rave reviews. I mean, just left and right, people just loving this movie. It ended up getting 13 Academy Award nominations and winning five, uh, including, of course, Best Actress uh, for Julie Andrews. And interestingly note, um, before and since, no Disney movie has had as many nominations and Oscar wins. So this really is the most um, heralded uh, live-action Disney film of all time. Uh, And I would say overall film to be quite honest with you because a lot of the other films animation have not gotten this much um award consideration before either so really it's it's the crown jewel when it comes to you know academy award nominations and things like that for the disney company and this movie really has been credited as a movie that really put Walt Disney Studios, their live action department on the map. Before then, it was all animation. So they were known as being an animated children's type of company. And this really, this movie really put them on the map towards live action production. So, you know, this and, you know, basically any, every other live action film since, you know, Herbie the Love Bug and, you know, the, the Shaggy Dog and all those films that came afterwards, you know, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea can be credited to, Mary Poppins is, is starting the whole the whole live action trend there. So really, really interesting that it really kind of broke the ground um, for for the company itself on that end. The cast, obviously iconic. You know, you have Julie Andrews. Um, interestingly enough, this is her first on screen film role. I mean, she had done some television specials. We all know she did the um, Rodgers and Hammerstein Cinderella TV special, but this was her first actual feature film role, which is crazy to think about because it almost didn't happen. Um, here's what a lot of people don't know is that she actually did not want to do this film. Uh, she had to be con- convinced to do this film, talked into it by Walt Disney himself. She was actually holding out hope that she would be cast in the upcoming film version of My Fair Lady. She'd actually been told that she was kind of in the final consideration for that role. So she was actually holding out and say, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't want to do this Disney product, uh, project. I'm waiting for My Fair Lady to see what happens with that. Um, Walt, the famous story is that Walt Disney um, saw Julie Andrews perform excerpts of Camelot uh, when she was doing that on Broadway on the Ed Sullivan Show, became enamored with her performance and said, this, this could be my next Mary Poppins, flew to New York City, went to go see Camelot, and then came backstage afterwards 
to basically offer the role of Mary Poppins. There was no official audition process. There was no um, screen testing or anything like that. It was just, we want you for this role. And that's when, you know, Julie Andrews said that she was holding out hope for My Fair Lady, but also that she was pregnant at the time. She was three months pregnant when they offered her the role. So she, so Walt Disney actually said, we will delay production until you've had your child, um, which again, crazy to think about um, by today's standards, by 1960s standards, that they would hold production on a multi-million dollar project just to wait for the delivery of a child. So again, really interesting that that basically goes to show how much Walt Disney wanted Julie Andrews for this project. But of, of course, we all know that um, Audrey, Audrey Hepburn ended up getting uh, My Fair Lady, uh, which interestingly enough, came out the same year as Mary Poppins. Both were nominated, heavily nominated in the Academy Awards. My Fair Lady wins Best Picture, um, and Audrey ha- uh, and Julie Andrews wins Best Actress. And Audrey Hepburn isn't even nominated for Best Actress. So one could say that Julie Andrews made the right choice, or, you know, obviously her career path did, you know, the right thing there. <laughs> um, but obviously Audrey Hepburn had a phenomenal career in her own right as well. But anyway... Um, I think it's fascinating that you have Julie Andrews in this role. It's her first major role, arguably the most iconic, you know, movie musical female character of all time. Interestingly enough, the second most, or you know, arguably also the most iconic female live action movie musical character of all time, also played by Julie Andrews. And of course, that's Maria von Trapp in *The Sound of Music*, which is the movie that she did almost directly following. Mary Poppins. In fact, Robert Wise and um, one of the producers of The Sound of Music came to the set and actually saw footage of Julie Andrews performing as Mary Poppins, and that's what convinced them to cast her as Maria in The Sound of Music. So literally, Julie Andrews got Sound of Music because of Mary Poppins, and she does them pretty much back-to-back. I mean, she did a, a little film in between, but basically um, she is doing these two movies back-to-back, and when you hit hits like that, when you hit success like that, right off the bat, um, your 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 career is off to a, you know an amazing start. There, I mean, find me another actress, especially in the movie musical realm, that that had something like that happen, where you're basically you're creating two of the most iconic characters of all time in your first two out of three movies that you've done. Um, and you know, if we're calling it like it is, you know, since then. If you look at, you know, Julie Andrews' career afterwards, obviously nothing really has, I guess you could say, reached that level of iconic status. And, you know, for people that want to say, well, what about Victor Victoria and, um, you know, Star and, and Thoroughly Admire Millie? Let's let's be honest for it. Come on. You know, when you think of Julie Andrews, you're thinking about those two roles and that's about it. Come on. let's Let's be realistic. So, you know, and then lately she's obviously done a lot of voiceover work and things like that. But, um really interesting that that's that you could say she peaked um in her first couple years of her career and you know that's not a that's not a knock it's just the fact that you just created these two absolutely iconic roles back to back and and you know that's that's what happens sometimes so um again you know you've got in this movie you've got julie andrews right at her beginning of stages of her incredible career um just hitting it in all you know areas and cylinders and whatnot. I mean, her acting is is fantastic in this film. Her singing. One thing that I've always respected about Julie Andrews, now granted, you know, they're they're taping this and dubbing it and things like that. She's not singing live in these um movies, but 
know, even sing, watching her sing live, the sound that she makes is, <clears throat> how, I mean, I don't know how to describe it. There's a clarity and smoothness and beauty about Julie Andrews's voice that is unmatched. Um, you know, we have other amazing singing actresses like, you know, Barbara Streisand, for instance, you know, more recently, Anna Kendrick and things like that. But when it comes to Julie Andrews's sound, it is something that is indescribable. I mean, there's just a beauty about it and a smoothness about it. And if you've ever seen her perform live, the the fact that she does it with such ease is mind blowing. Um, so again, it's it just absolutely incredible, perfect casting choice. But you know, interestingly enough, she they had other people that they were considering. I, you know, looking back, I mean, you cannot think of anybody other than that Julie Andrews playing this role. I mean, I don't think anybody would have done as a great of a job. And I think the reason why the role has gone on to become so iconic is because of her performance. Um, other casting, obviously Dick Van Dyke in his most iconic role. It's interesting enough, you know, this he got cast in this and was doing this at the same time he was doing the Dick Van Dyke show. He'd already done Bye Bye Birdie, so we knew that he had, you know, musical theater cred, so to speak. But, um, you know, this was kind of the height of his popularity, but this movie absolutely, you know, launched him into the stratosphere uh, when it came to you know him becoming the icon um, that he is, and he has you know uh, you know said many times that this was his favorite role um, he's ever played um, as well. And again, when you look at his career, um, you know, arguably, I mean, this is the biggest thing he's known for. Period. When you when you think of Dick Van Dyke you're thinking of, of Mary Poppins. And for anybody out there who says differently, they're lying. Um, other other really, really great casting choices, David Tomlinson um, as George Banks, who absolutely just epitomizes this role perfectly. Um, you, you feel bad for him. You root for him. You get angry at him. I mean, he really just embodies George Banks in such a great way. And, you know, for this performance and uh, his performance in Bedknobs and Broomsticks, I mean, and The Love Bug, I mean, he really does belong. If there is a Disney Hall of Fame, you know, he belongs in it. Um, so, you know, interesting about Tomlinson, you know, he was actually a you know, huge, huge star uh, of the 1940s and 50s, did a lot of projects, but obviously, you know, these movies, these Disney films put him in a completely different level um, as well. Other really great casting choices. Um, I love... Uh, Glennis Johns, who plays Winnie, Winifred, uh, Mrs. Banks, uh, and and she's an that's an interesting character that we'll talk about a little bit later in the podcast about you know her the complexities of, of that character in the time that they set the movie. Um, also, uh, the kids, Jane and Michael Banks, played by Karen Detroit and Matthew Garber. Karen Detroit, daughter of famous actor Roy Detroit from Amadeus and The Cutting Edge, and which is one of my favorite movies, um, but. Great performance there. And Matthew Garber, who sadly passed away at the age of 21, playing Michael Banks. These two actually starred in a couple films together. Um, I guess Disney had this thing at the day where they just had a pool of kids <laughs> that they used in you know a couple different movies. Because they had actually had um, three different projects that they were in together. Um, I don't know if they were related. I haven't seen those other movies. But it was interesting to see that they were in three other films um, together. Ed Wynn. The great Edwin uh, as Uncle Albert, that iconic voice. Which, if you, um, you know, if you watch Mary Poppins, it, you you are not mishearing it. Um, Alan Tudyk references his voice, does an homage to his voice in Wreck-It Ralph. So when you watch Wreck-It Ralph, you are hearing 
Alan Tudyk's impression of Edwin. It's morally based on um, Alice in Wonderland, where Edwin played the Mad Hatter, but it's that iconic, like high-pitched, joyful, squeaky voice that Edwin does, and and his performance in this is fantastic. Uh, Jane Darwell as the Bird Woman. I mean, you've got a lot of great cast uh, actors and actresses in this in this ensemble. So um, really strong all around. So great, great cast overall. Let's talk about some of the factoids about this film. It came out in August 29th of 1964. And I say that's a significant date because this is a less than a year after President John F. Kennedy had been assassinated. So the country, and you could argue, you know, many many countries, um, were mourning this loss. It was a traumatic, depressing time uh, for the United States. And then... Um, the summer after that assassination, Disney comes out with Mary Poppins, which is a really uplifting film. I mean, it's hard not to feel better <laughs> after you've watched Mary Poppins. Am I right? I mean, it's like you you just feel better watching after watching this film. There's so many things that just make you feel better. Um, and the country needed that, I think, at the time. And uh, I remember talking uh, with my mom and I t- remember talking with my grandparents uh, when they were still alive, um, about Mary Poppins when I used to watch it as a kid, and they would talk about, yeah, like this was a popular movie because people could go and escape for a little while, watch magic literally on screen, and just feel better wa- walking out of the theater because up till then, the country was in mourning, basically. So that that significance of the date where it came out um, cannot be understated. Less than a year after John F. Kennedy's assassination. So um, those are some general factoids about the movie, which I thought were pretty interesting. Um, next, let's talk about production hell. Obviously, when it comes to Mary Poppins, the stories of its development and the struggle to get it to the screen is legendary. I mean, for God's sakes, Disney made a movie about the making of this movie. And if you haven't seen Saving Mr. Banks, you should really you should do yourself a favor. Go watch Saving Mr. Banks first, then go watch Mary Poppins, and then go to the theater and watch Mary Poppins Returns. And then you've basically watched the the um, chronological order of, of the evolution of this this film, uh, basically. So um, we all know from, from reading about it, from watching Saving Mr. Banks, that P.L. Travers, who wrote uh, Mary Poppins, did not want Walt Disney producing this film. Um, she was against it for many years. Um, decades even, basically, saying, no, you're, you're not getting the film rights um, to this movie because she was afraid of what Walt Disney was actually going to do with it. And truth be told, a lot of her fears ended up coming true. She did not want any of the movie to be animated at all. Um, and of course, we all know she lost that battle because there is an animated sequence in the film. She also did not want it to be a musical. And that, you know, Obviously, if she had gotten her way, we're not talking about it on this podcast. And also, it doesn't nearly reach the iconic status that it did uh, without the music provided by the Sherman Brothers. Um, So that was really interesting as well. But she put her foot down on every single, you know, corner she could. She didn't like the casting of Dick Van Dyke. Um, She was kind of ambivalent when it came to Julie Andrews. But she wanted a British cast. I mean, she did not like the fact that an American was going to be portraying this this character of Bert and and you know to her credit she was kind of right I mean I love Dick Van Dyke but he also gives one of the worst Cockney accents you know in film history in fact um, 
many people have written about that, about how bad his, his accent is in this movie. So again, with a British actor in place, you know, who knows, that, that performance might have been something different entirely, but, you know, at least the accent would have been correct, I guess. But she really had put her foot down on, on a lot of different things, ended up not being happy with the finished result, and in fact, banning... um Disney or anybody for that matter to really develop any of her works um, for the rest of her life. In fact, when Kevin McIntosh wanted to do the stage musical of Mary Poppins, she said, okay, fine, but you're not allowed to use any of the Disney songs um, and it cannot resemble the the film in any way, shape or form. And of course, that's not going to work. I mean, who's going to want to go see a Mary Poppins musical that doesn't resemble the Disney film in some way or another? So literally... Uh, Cameron McIntosh had to wait until P.L. PL Travers basically died to then approach the Walt Disney Company and negotiate them getting involved with the actual musical, which, you know, we can we can debate it. I don't I don't like the stage musical very much. I, I get that it matches the books a little bit more, but um, you know, that's a it's a tough movie to kind of translate to the stage. I'm not a huge fan. I'm just going to put that out there. I'm not a huge fan of the stage musical. I've seen it twice uh, in two different settings, one professional, one community, and it just never really did anything for me. But anyway, um, so again, the, the, the stories from backstage, the stories of development, how P.L. Travers literally put her foot down every step of the way is legendary. If you haven't seen Saving Mr. Banks, please go see it. It is a must-required viewing you know, before watching Mary Poppins, before you go see Mary Poppins Returns. Do yourself a favor and watch that because... Well, a lot of people might think that Peel Travers was just being a diva and being ridiculous. There is a substantial reason behind all of her demands and the reason why she wanted things portrayed in a certain way. In fact, even going as far as not having um, Mr. Banks having a mustache. So there you go. So again, really go see that movie because, again, it's an excellent, excellent film. And also it's kind of cool seeing, you know, the making of one of the most iconic Disney movies of all time. So, again, it's kind of cool to see those factoids um, and things before they made it happen. Um, other really kind of cool production stories from behind the scenes, um, the Step in Time sequence uh, up on the rooftop actually took a week to film. That is not that is a gigantic long sequence to film. Um, so it took an entire week. But sadly, when they finished filming, they noticed that there was a scratch on the film so that there were certain sequences um, that were out of focus. It, it caused like a scratch and blurred image. So they actually had to go back and refilm everything. So a week's worth of work was basically lost, um, and they had to go back and film that entire sequence all over again. I cannot even imagine what the the, the rage um, from the cast, to the crew, and all that, when that was actually discovered as well. Um, the kids were treated pretty pretty well um during this film and and actually some pretty cool stories came from the way that they were they were treated backstage for instance the filmmakers didn't inform uh karen detroit or matthew garber about some of the surprises that were going to show up in the movie so for instance you know look very carefully uh when mary poppins is taking the stuff out of her carpet bag because um karen detroit's reactions to that are real i mean granted i'm sure they probably set it up in a way that you know um to be able to, to lift those items out of the bag. But I mean, Karen Detroit had no idea what was coming out of that bag. So um, her look of dumb, you know, dumbfoundedness and just amazement, um, that's genuine. And also there's a little scream when um, that she makes when Mary Poppins is pouring uh, the medicines in different colors on their spoons that she makes. She wasn't expecting that either. So um, there were some surprises. They also didn't tell the children uh, that Mr. Dawes, who's that horrible old man, um, was actually Dick Van Dyke. Um, and 
the entire time, uh, they were basically afraid that this man was going to fall down at any moment. So they had no idea that it was Dick Van Dyke. And the cool, interesting story about that is Dick Van Dyke, um, when they were making this film and casting this film, and he read the script, he desperately also wanted to play this role. And of course, like Disney, the, the directors and the filmmakers and the, the crew, first of all, said, you know, no, you're already playing Bert. Um, we're going to get an older actor for this role. But um, if you want to audition, that's okay. So Dick Van Dyke literally auditioned to be that role. And he actually had to come up with a, he, he offered to do it for free, basically. So they weren't going to pay him extra. And he also had to do, uh, give a donation to Cal Arts, uh, their animation program to play that. So he actually had to pay to play that role, which I think is, is fascinating to look back on as well. But again, really interesting performance as well. Uh, Matthew Garber, uh, during is, it was like deathly afraid of heights. So when they filmed that scene where they're having tea on the ceiling, um, which was all done by wires, by the way, so it wasn't like the floor was right underneath them and they're just you know up maybe a couple inches off the ground. They were literally up in the air hanging by wires, and he was apparently terrified uh, of heights and was constantly afraid he was going to fall. So the filmmakers literally gave him 10 cents for every single take that he had to be up there. So they called it the... Um, the bonus, so to speak, the T-scene bonus uh, that he got for every single scene that he had to go up there. So again, not a lot of drama uh, backstage when it came to the, the casting and the actual making of the film once it got to the production stages uh, of the film. But like I said, all the drama was basically before then. Um, when it comes to casting, casting cast close calls, I can't even talk tonight, um, not a lot either. I mean, you know, Dick Van Dyke and Julie, uh, Julie Andrews were pretty much the top choices for these roles, but just in case they couldn't get them for these roles, um, filmmakers and, and the casting and Disney had other plans um, as well. For instance, Danny Kaye, Fred Astaire, Jim Jim Dale, and even Cary Grant uh, were considered for uh, Burt. In fact, even though Dick Van Dyke considers this his favorite role of all time, he's come out and said that Jim Dale probably would have played the role better. Um, same thing for Ron Moody. He said that Ron, Jim Dale and Ron Moody would probably have played the role of Bert a lot better than I have. But, you know, I disagree. I think that his performance is great. Um, original choices for George Banks included Richard Harris, uh, Terry Thomas, George Sanders, James Mason, and even Donald Sutherland. Now, that would have been creepy. I'm not going to lie. I like me some Donald Sutherland, but he only works in certain types of films. He would not have worked um, in... Uh, in Mary Poppins, especially not 1964. So I don't know why, where that came from, but um, <clears throat> he was actually considered for that, which I think is pretty interesting. Walt Disney also had considered Mary Martin, Betty Davis, and Angela Lansbury uh, for the part of Mary Poppins. And, you know, this is, I guess you could say, the first of two films that Julie Andrews beat out uh, Mary Martin for, because Mary Martin was also considered for Maria in The Sound of Music. So, yeah, I kind of feel bad for Mary Martin in that way. But, I mean, she had a phenomenal career as well. But still, it's like she was like the second choice for these iconic roles. It's like when is Mary Martin going to get her due? But um, I don't think it the, – the character obviously would have been a much different character. I think the closest person that I probably could have came to what Julie Andrews did would obviously be Angela Lansbury who would – you know, like I said, I don't feel bad for her because she went on to do some incredible work um, for for the Walt Disney Company. I mean she was in bed knobs and broomsticks and things like that. So um, again, you know, she didn't really miss out anything. But I think if, if you hadn't gotten Julie Andrews – Angela Lansbury would have been a phenomenal choice um, in that role as well. Probably not so much for Betty Davis. I don't know if Betty Davis could kind of 
go along with the whimsy uh, of this film. Um, and But honestly, Mary Martin could as well. But I just think that Angela Lansbury probably would have been the closest uh, in terms of what we got from Julie Andrews. Um, some general thoughts about this movie. I mean, we've, we've already discussed it a little bit, but definitely groundbreaking when it comes to design. Nothing really before this movie you know, came out really approached design this way from the entire animated sequence um, when they jump into the painting to the anima- audio animatronics that are in the film, um, as well to the little you know magic tricks that they do, uh, whether it's the pulling stuff out of the bag, whether it's the mirror trick and things like that. Um, obviously, sp- suspension cable work in this movie is is brilliant as well. Um, <clears throat> so, again, you know, broke a lot of ground. Uh, when it when it actually came out in terms of design, also general thought about this film, probably the best collection of the Sherman Brothers catalog in a single film. I mean they are they are easily the most iconic song team in movie musical history. Um, I don't think there's a debate there. I mean when you think about their catalog and the songs that they did for Disney and and also other studios as well, um, absolutely iconic. And um, really, really at the top of my list when we talk about these song teams uh, of that era and, and what they actually ended up producing. But I think here in Mary Poppins, you have a collection of their best work overall in one movie, which I think is amazing to listen to. Um, obviously, my favorite song in the entire movie is Feed the Birds. I mean, that's just such an a, a iconic melody really emotional song and interestingly enough it was walt disney's favorite song that the sherman brothers ever did in fact uh there would be times where they'd be working on other projects after this where if walt disney walked into the room he would just tell one of the sherman brothers play it and they knew exactly what song he was talking about and they would play him feed the birds i mean and i can't blame him it is such an emotional track uh to listen to definitely ahead of its time in a lot of respects but um Really, one of my favorite songs that of of any movie musical that's ever come out uh, is "Feed the Birds," and and you, like I said, the mu- the music in this movie is absolutely incredible. Which actually leads us into our next topic, which is rating singing, dancing, acting, and design one to ten. One being the worst, ten being the best. Let's start with singing. You know, these are obviously all these areas are what you want to have firing on all cylinders to make a great movie musical. Um, so let's start. Let's start with talking about singing. Obviously, the singing in this movie is outstanding from top to bottom, whether it's, you know, needing a a powerful, great voice or a character voice. Everything is perfectly suited or practically perfect, if you want to kind of go that far, um, is perfectly suited for each character, for each song. Um, There really isn't a single song that I feel is, man, that that would have sounded better if that person just had a better voice, you know, things like that. So I'm going to give the singing a 10 in this movie overall. I mean, really, I mean, there, there is, I couldn't, I really looked hard and I, I just felt like, man, even, even when David Tomlinson is doing his, um, you know, the songs where he's talking about, you know, his, his industry, his day and things like that. Um, you know, his role as, as the head of a household and things like that, you know, there really isn't, you know, anything that man, it's like, uh, it's perfect. Like the way he says, sings and, and, and talks through some of those things such as, you know, fidelity, fiduciary bank, and um, a man has his dreams and stuff like that. It's perfect. It, I, I kind of compared to a lot of what Rex Harrison did in My Fair Lady where it's just, it just sounds 
right in a, in a, in a certain way. So he, I thought he was great. So again, the music in this film, the singing in this film is absolutely um, perfect. Not practically perfect, perfect. So I'm going to give it a 10. Dancing. You know what? For 1964, this is a very, very strong choreographed film. It was choreographed by uh, Mark Bro and his and his wife, um, and they are responsible for some other really iconic, you know, choreography on film. They also did Sound of Music, uh, as well as Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. So they they did you know their fair share of, of really great work. But you know, here in Mary Poppins, I think this is their best overall work. I mean, the Step in Time sequence is absolutely iconic um you know to see i've seen dance classes do it um i've seen people try to replicate that number it is athletic i mean that's that i don't i wouldn't say it's complex i think it's the type of choreography that you know it doesn't require someone to have you know a mastery of of dance so to speak to be able to do but you need to be able to be an athlete um doing that because it's exhausting and so um that was great obviously the choreography that they do in the animated sequences um is fantastic as well uh with the penguins of course you know mixing the animation with live action awesome as well so again choreography in this really really strong i gave it a nine there you go acting wise again i think for all the important roles you've got strong acting performances all around julie andrews giving arguably her best performance of her entire career and it's actually her first same thing for dick van dyke a lot of these other characters really for me it's the mom and dad george and and mrs banks um they did unbelievable jobs in this as well david tomlinson is one his performance is one of my favorite performances of any movie musical of all time it is heartbreaking it is frustrating it's you go across every single emotion with him and you feel every single emotion with his performances as well. So again, acting was just really, really strong overall. Kids were great too. I'm going to give it a seven. I'm going to give it a seven. Because you know what? Honestly, while the leads were really, really great, some of the supporting members, some of the, the ensemble members, not so great. So, But again, acting a seven. Design? I think this is pretty easy. When it comes to the set design, the costuming, the actual you know visual effects and things like that, I mean, I cannot give this anything less than a 10. I mean, it's perfect. I mean, it's when you think about all the ground that they broke with this film and making this film, the production side of this film, you got to give it a 10. I mean, it really is. So 10, 10, 10. There you go. Um, numbers that we needed, numbers that we could do without. Again, because this movie was not based on a pre-existing musical, um, not really anything that was, you know, like, you know, cut, so to speak. But they, there were more songs written for this movie um, that were actually cut from the actual film. Um, songs like The Chimpanzee, which was actually supposed to follow I Love to Laugh, and also obviously pra- uh, Practically Perfect, a song that was inserted into the live um, stage musical. Um, the Eyes of Love, which was supposed to be a romantic ballad between Bert and Mary, but according to Richard Sherman, um, Julie Andrews suggested privately that uh, to Disney that this song was unsuitable. Uh, and in spot, in response, a spoonful of sugar was actually written. Also, this kind of follows um, P.L. Travers's insistence that there should be no romantic connection between Bert and Mary, even though that's pretty much implied uh, throughout the entire uh, film. Um, also, another song that didn't make the cup, uh, A Name's a Name, You Think You Blink, uh, West Wind. I mean, they, all these songs, they cut, um, they actually wrote and cut uh, 13 songs that were supposed to be in this movie. So that so already a loaded movie when it comes to a movie musical score was supposed to be basically twice that, uh, which I think is song. Even Admiral Boom had his own um, song as well, and that got cut. But I think when it comes to the songs that aren't in the movie, I'm going to be honest with you, 
I don't think any of them stack up. I mean, we've seen some of them that are in the live stage show. Um, none of them really stack up to what's already in the film. So I don't think anything was really needed. Um, I think that for all the songs that are in there, all of them pretty much hit the right kind of, you know, moments and notes that you really needed uh, for that film, so to speak. Uh, numbers that we could do without hard choices on this one, because again, some of these are the most iconic songs of, of, of the, of the 20th century when it comes to movie musicals of all time. I mean, you know, Spoonful of Sugar, Supercalifragilisticexpialidocious, um, Let's Go Fly a Kite, Feed the Birds. I mean, it, these are iconic songs. So I guess maybe the, if I had to pick one, I would pick A Man Has Dreams between Dick Van Dyke and David Thomason just because you you could probably achieve the same effect and impact story-wise with just having that being dialogue rather than a song. It's a nice song, but you know, you could it's not something that's like you need to have a song there. You could just easily have that been a conversation between the two, which is actually what it was before they started singing. So I guess of all them of all the songs I would pick, A Man Has Dreams would probably be the one that I would boot out of there. Um but again, that's one it's hard to pick with this with this movie. Uh what's dated and, and what's timeless? Um well, I mean, you know, the movie takes place in nineteen ten. We know that for a fact, because uh, it's mentioned. Um so you could say that, you know, what's dated, pretty much everything <laughs> in this movie. Um, but especially, obviously, the role of women in the household, definitely dated. I would also say flying kites. Nobody flies a kite anymore. Um, it's it's such a, you know, that's what you did years ago is for fun. But now, you know, it's a 21st century technology. You know, you're not seeing families and, and kids flying a lot of kites anymore. Um, you still see, see them being sold. I just, you know, you're not seeing it. So uh, I would say flying kites. What's timeless about this film? Uh, nannies. Nannies are obviously still around. Um, we have a babysitter, not a nanny, but a babysitter that watches my son every day while we're at work. Um, you know, I know all pairs and, and the nannies uh, of New York City are still obviously uh, pretty famous as well. And I know British nannies are still famous as well. So again, nannies and, and babysitters and au pairs and things like that, these are people that do tremendous work, by the way. And I'm, of course, talking to my own babysitter, Cindy, who does incredible work with my son. Um, but these are people that are obviously going to be employed in a system that's going to be employed uh, for years to come. So that, that nanny system and, and occupation um, isn't going anywhere anytime soon. Um, also, I would say the pressures of, of classism and of maintaining a certain level of class, that's basically George Banks' entire argument throughout this entire movie is, is maintaining and success uh, for himself and his family and, and sacrificing time with his family in order to maintain that success. As someone who works as much as I do. I can definitely empathize with that. Um, but yeah, I don't think that's going anyway anytime soon. I think there is a fear of in this in this society of of moving down in class, of becoming less than than what we previously were. We constantly want to get better. We constantly want to move up. We want to make more money, not less, and things like that. So the pressures that you see in this movie of him, kind of just on his shoulders of maintaining that throughout the entire film really speaks at a timeless level. Like when you watch this movie now, I think of all the characters that people are probably going to most relate to is George Banks, male or female. I mean, I think just being the head of a household that you're going to relate to George Banks in some way or another. Um, so those are, those are kind of the, the what's dated and what time is. I'm sure a lot more. I mean, what's also dated, you know, non-cellular phones. I guess, you know, like, you know, when you watch this film and I think there's some kids like, what is that contraption that they're putting their ear in and, you know, ringing and dialing and things like that? What is that? Um, so again, 
that that might be dated. But again, I mean, it, this movie was set in 1910, so pretty much everything that you see is going to be dated. Lingering questions. Let's move on to lingering questions because I have a couple. Um, first of all, beginning of the movie, Bert is just killing it with his one-man band. I mean, he does a great performance. He's got an entire crowd around him. He's telling stories about each person. By the way, all those people that he's telling stories about and doing rhymes about are actually characters in the books. So for those, not that there were a lot of people back in 1964 complaining that the books didn't resemble the movie or the movie didn't resemble the books enough, those characters are mentioned in the movie. Um, But when he's done, only two people give him a tip and maybe it's like a like a tuppence uh, a piece. I don't think he even got a pound uh, for his, his, his work there. And he's, he told at least four people a story about themselves. Um, and no one gave him a tip. Like not even the people that like really reacted well to his um, story. So like my question is like, what the heck, man? Why are people so cheap? <laughs> it's like, dude, tip the man. Why, why doesn't he get more tips? Uh, that, that I thought was pretty annoying. Um, next question. Lingering question. And maybe some of you can answer these for me in the comment sections, by the way. Where do the nannies go when they blow off? When the wind comes in and blows all those dozens of nannies away down the street, where do they go? And this actually, this question came from my four-year-old son. He's like, where do the nannies go? And I was like, um, I have no idea. I told them that they're okay. I'm sure they're okay. But where did they go? Did they blow into the park? Did they blow into another country? Did they disappear? I mean... And the other question, not for nothing, but is like, did anybody find that weird? Like, you know, the wind comes along and blows dozens of people away. If the nannies did survive, which I'm sure they did, um, did they not tell anybody about that experience? Like, how did that, the news of a wind gust that was so strong that blew away dozens of nannies into the sky um, not get talked about? in society in british society in the early 1900s i don't i don't get that so um there you go where did the nannies go that's 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 a lingering question um another question what's up with the constable you you've got your neighborhood constable um police force and who you could say is terrible about at his job first of all you know no report about the missing nannies so Dozens of nannies just blow off in the sky. He knows nothing about it. Um, secondly, he doesn't seem to notice dozens of chimney sweep men running out of a house and doesn't blink. Like he's just walking down the street. He sees them. One like does a like a dosy do thing with them. Another tips his hat and they all run off. No questioning. No running after them saying, "Hey, stop right there! What were you doing in that house? What were twenty of you doing in that house?" Um, yet he is so concerned about missing children that is like you his main job his main occupation is not necessarily to question things that look suspicious but you know if you see a you know unsupervised child in the park that's when it's like oh my god code red gotta find out what's going on here with these kids um so i guess you could say why is the constable so bad at his job that's 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 a lingering question um i had about this movie um also what's the deal with admiral boom is no one going to talk about the Interesting facts in, in the lifestyle of Admiral Boom. I mean, here he is. He's got his first mate uh, that he lives with. Clearly still thinks he's in the military or Navy of some sort. Um, you know, it's, it sets off, you know, decide, instead of like having a, a rooster to tell the time in the neighborhood, he actually fires a cannon. No one, and no one blinks an eye. 
No one seems to have a problem with this. Yeah, yeah, Admiral Boom, that's just him firing cannons off his roof to, to mark the time. Totally okay. Also, not for nothing, but if when you watch the inside of the Banks house, take the piano off its wheels. I mean, it's going to crush somebody. Every time that, that cannon goes off, it nearly kills somebody. Um, just take it off its wheels. It's one less thing you have to boom back, move back into place. You know, it makes, makes life easier for you um, when Admiral Boom goes through his, his daily routine of firing cannons off the top of a roof, which is... Crazy to think about. Um, more complex question I have about this movie. Where does Mary's powers derive from? <laughs> it's like, what's the origin of her magic, so to speak? Is she just a, a magic, you know, fairy type of, of creature? Did she have a stone? Is it is it the umbrella that gives her power? That's a question I've always wanted to know. Maybe it's answered in the sequel. Maybe it's answered in the books. I have not read the book series at all, so I probably couldn't tell you that. But if anybody knows, where do Mary's powers derive from? And what are its limits? What are its, where, where can it go? Like, how much more can she do? Can she control minds? Can she teleport? Like, all these questions. So many questions about her powers, um, especially in the age of superhero films. I need to know these things <laughs> as a viewer. It would really help me. So maybe those questions are answered in the sequel. Who knows? Um, next question. During the horse race in the animated sequence, is there a betting line for carousel horses that magically appear in the middle of race and then win it? Is there is that an actual bet that you could make in those horse races? And if not, how much did those people lose with Mary and the kids and Bert intruding on that race and screwing up the result? I mean, she literally asks the two lead horses to move out of the way and slow down so that she can pass and win the race. So did anybody win money on that race? That's that's what I want to know. So um and does how much does that screw up the betting uh for that race? So again, these are these are fun questions to ask while you're watching the film. And the final one which I think is really a you know more serious question and a substantial question is you know obviously when they're flying the kite we see that George Banks is not only given his job back because he made the you know the founding person of the bank laughed himself to death. Um, but also he's given a promotion to partner, which means he got his, the job that he had that already, you know, get, you know, took up a lot of his time. He's now getting a better job, um, which conceivably could also take more of his time. So my question is, is this a good thing? Like at the end of the movie where he's like, Oh, George, here's your promotion. Are we like, yay? Or are we like, well, he'll still figure out how to do a nice work life balance with his kids and still be there and be a loving father. But he's now got a more high paying job, which could potentially be a more busy job. So is this a good thing? Should we be cheering for the, for the fact that he gets his job back and a promotion at the end of the movie? I don't know. Lingering question. That's why we ask these things. Let's move on to the awards. We of course have three awards that we give out during this podcast. The Barber Award, which is given to the best singer of the movie, named after, of course, after Barbra Streisand. We also have the Russell Crowe Award, um, which is the flip side, which is who we feel is the worst or least great singer, I should say, um, of each film. And then finally, there's what's called the Bumlet Award. The Bumlet Award is a pretty specific award. This is given to a ensemble or supporting cast member that just chews up all the scenery. You cannot take your eyes off of them for the rest of the movie. Uh, and you know you want to make sure you give a shout out to those people. Um, it is named after the character of Bumlet from the movie Newsies, uh, who if you watch Newsies, it's played by a young man named Dominic Lucero, who has sadly passed away as well. Um, and he's the guy, if you watch King of New York, at the end, he's spinning on the fan. 
um, and does like this really cool pirouette into a landing, grabs a paper. It's, it's a cool sequence. And after that, you cannot take your, your eyes off of him. When you, when you rewatch Newsies, you're looking at him from the very beginning. He's by far the best dancer in the entire company. So I wanted to name a, an award after him for, for background people that just absolutely kill it. So there you go. Barber Award. My Barber Award, very obvious. Very easy choice. It goes to Julia, uh, Julia, uh, I was about to say Julia Roberts, Julie Andrews. Um, obviously, not only the best voice in this movie, but one of the best voices in movie musical history. Um, God knows she did a lot of them. So again, the easy choice there, uh, Julie Andrews. Worst voice for the Russell Crowe Award. Again, I don't think there's a worst voice in this. I don't think there's anybody in this movie that's singing that shouldn't be. I think they all kind of fit the characters that they needed to be, and the kids sounded like kids singing, which was fine. But I think, you know, obviously for least great singing voice overall, I mean, I guess you got to give it to Ed Wynn because he just wasn't a singer. Um, but he had a great character voice for, you know, I love to laugh. So um, tough award to give, but I'll give it to Ed Wynn for being the least great, least great singing voice. But again, great character voice uh, on that end. So finally, the Bumlet Award. Who is the ensemble or supporting member that just absolutely crushes it in this entire movie? And I, I had a lot of choices. Um, I could have given it to the constable. I could have given it to Admiral Boom. I could have given it to I could have given it to the guy who's in the front row of Step in Time. He's got blonde hair. It's like the second person from the left when they're dancing in front of Mary Poppins, absolutely crushing it with his facial expressions and things like that. But I ended up giving it to Ellen the Maid, who's uh, played by Hermione Badly. Um, absolutely incredible performance. I think, you know, there's the cook, there's the maid, there's um, Kitty Nana, Kitty Nana, in the beginning of the film. But throughout the entire film, um, Hermione is giving some incredible facial reactions, looks, especially when all of the chimney sweeps are intruding on the house and she's like, oh my God, it's the master and stuff like that. And she's just dancing around the entire, you know, um, the flat there, you know, the apartment there. Um, but her, her facial reactions to all the stuff that Mary is doing with the kids and stuff like that, it's just gold. It's gold. And, um, she really is kind of the, the, the person that, you know, is giving us the, oh my God, this is really kind of cool. What's happening here. Um, reactions that we need. So that's my bumbling award. Ellen, the maid, you get my bumbling award for this film. Last question we have to ask, does this get a remake? Answer is very easy. Absolutely not. I would set fire to the streets if Disney came out and said that they were going to remake Mary Poppins. I think Mary Poppins returns is the best um, thing that we can do when it comes to this movie. Um, It does not get a remake ever. I don't care if it's 50 years from now, this movie's 100 years old, does not get a remake. Um, I think the best thing you can do is sequels or prequels. That's really all you can do at this point with this. And, you know, the nice thing too, I think Disney gets that. This is its most iconic live action character. Uh, and so it's its most heralded, successful live action film uh, when it comes to its impact, social impact, pop culture impact, things like that. Um, I don't think Disney would ever attempt to do a remake on this i don't think they would mess with their property uh and produce a less than stellar um remake of this film so why even bother like i said i think mary poppins returns another sequel after that um a prequel things like that. that's really that's what you're gonna get that's the best you can hope for um and and thank god because i don't again like i said before i don't want um a remake uh, of mary poppins ever ever to happen because i think that would just be 
Um, absolutely, absolutely ridiculous. So that is going to do it for us tonight um, on this incredible, incredible, you know, Monday afternoon, Monday evening. Uh, I am so glad that you are tuning in and listening to me ramble about Mary Poppins for about an hour. Um, like I said, we're going to be doing these every single week. There is no shortage of movie musicals out there. We are going to be doing good ones. We are also going to be doing bad ones. And I promise you, um, even though we've done some pretty good ones up to this point, there were going to be some pretty bad ones uh, coming up, which I may or may not be excited to be watching <laughs> anytime soon. We're also going to have a rotating um, slot of, of guest hosts, guest co-hosts, things like that. Can't wait. You can listen to this podcast now, by the way, on not only our own website, but also on Spreaker.com, as well as we just started with Podbean and Spotify. So you can actually soon be able to listen if you have Spotify. You can soon listen to this podcast on Spotify, which I'm really excited about as well, right here on the Page blog network. We're also putting together a lot of other podcasts. Um, I've talked to a couple people about hosting their own podcasts, and I am really excited about the potential that we have with this new network and all the new you know types of uh, podcasts that we could potentially be bringing to you uh, on a weekly basis, which I'm really excited about. Definitely check out our other podcast, Movie Court, with um, my chief film critic, Ken Jones and Greg Earhart. Uh, we we actually discuss um, whether or not X-Men The Last Stand belongs in movie jail, basically. So that's what the whole podcast is about. We're going to be doing more of those. Also, we're doing another uh, podcast called The Ripple Effect, which should be coming out soon, where we talk about what movies um, really set the tone and, and were influencers of an entire genre or other films as well. So I'm really excited to be talking about that too. But thank you again for listening to this podcast tonight. I cannot tell you how much I appreciate it. Um, and like I said, we're going to be doing this every week. So check back with us next week. We're, 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 I can't even talk where we will have a brand new movie musical and we're going to be breaking it down uh, in all different aspects right here on the movie musical shakedown. Thanks so much, folks. Have a great rest of your day. Ladies and gentlemen, may I have your attention, please? Five, six, seven, eight.